These stories have been on my mind for literally almost all of my life. Some have told me I just need to move on, but I couldn't. Others said, write them down. And until now, I couldn't even do that. I want to thank my four children, Allie, Austin, Alec, and Alana, for their encouragement to finally come forward. I also want to thank my wife, Heather, for listening to every word and still loving me. I've changed the names in all these stories, but they're based on real-life experiences. It is a life that led me to an award-winning career in journalism. I have made a living observing and telling other people's stories. Now, finally, it's time to tell mine. So begins the tales of Auburn Creek. It was an unusual day. I was running home because school had just been dismissed early. There would be no afternoon kindergarten, November 22, 1963. Luckily, I had only a few blocks to get home. I remember kind of skipping along the way since we were all let out early. Clearly, I didn't understand the significance of the day, but that was about to change. When I got home, I blurted out that school was let out early. My mother was sitting on the floor in front of the black and white television set in the family living room. Tears were streaming down her face. She did not hear a word I said, or at least didn't react. I put my books down and saddled up next to her to try and comfort her while turning my attention to the television. So many lives intersected that day. It is what it is, and it's murder most foul, Bob Dylan would pen sixty years later. Shot down like a dog in broad daylight. It was a matter of timing, and the timing was right. For the Raiders, the timing could not have been worse. Loanne had buried her first husband six years earlier. Even though she had remarried, the pain and anguish of that loss never really subsided. In fact, it appeared to be pulling her away from the four boys he had fathered, and she was now trying to raise. In short, while we didn't realize it at the time, we were losing her. She was pulling away from us and the reality of living without him, and we didn't even know it. As she stared at the screen, I believe now all that pain was coming back. The country was now experiencing pain that was merely compounding hers. She lost her sonny just east of the Boise River Bridge on Fairview Avenue, according to the Idaho Free Press, dated November 28th. 1956. The article only says that he was about 25 and that his death brought the number of road fatalities in Idaho to 231, 55 more than the previous year. Her husband's entire life reduced to a number. He was number 231. I was born seven months later. I believe she saw a little of herself in the widowed first lady with the two young children, who would know that out of that pain, I would ever find a pathway? I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm sure that day played a major role in my television career. The pain she felt was very real. I could feel the effect television was having on her, and I felt the power it could have on our lives firsthand. Years later, working in television, I covered the funeral of a young soldier. We were granted permission to set up in the balcony early to avoid distractions. So I was waiting for the mourners to arrive when a door opened. A young widow walked in with her little boy and approached the casket. I felt like an intruder and wanted to get up to leave, but was now afraid my doing so would distract from their moment. 
I sat motionless as the little boy got up on his tiptoes with his mother's help next to the open casket and kissed his father on the cheek. For the first time in my long career, I lost my composure. I felt that kiss and the pain that prompted it, right down to my bones. I don't remember a specific day when it happened, when my grandmother told us our mother had gone to the hospital for treatment and that she would be back soon. My grandmother stepped in to try to fill the void temporarily, but four young boys were just too overwhelming for her as well. I often wonder what actually pushed Mom over the edge into what was described to us as a nervous breakdown. Was it the loss of her beloved Sonny or trying to raise his four young sons? I remember the family, minus my mother, going for counseling to help us better understand what was going on. I was sitting on the floor playing with toys when the counselor came out and asked everyone to come in. She looked down at me, playing seemingly without a care on the floor. Should he come in? she asked the others. No, they answered. He's fine. He doesn't know what's going on anyway, one of my brothers quipped as they walked into the room and shut the door behind them. I watched helplessly. I wanted to yell out for them, but for some reason I didn't. I looked around the waiting room, and I was alone. I quit playing. I understood a lot more than I was letting on. The time for playing was over. My mother would not be coming home. She was sent to a state mental hospital about 90 minutes away for treatment. I spent many a weekend making the trip with my stepfather to visit her. She would function well in that environment, but when she would be released to come home, it would all start again. It'd be hard to have a conversation with her, so you learned how to pick your moments. She would have these spells where she would be talking to someone we couldn't see, her thumb and forefinger tapping all the while, eyes darting back and forth like she was arguing with someone. It was difficult to watch her slip away. And then she would have to go back to the hospital. It didn't take long for me to realize there would be no approving of report cards, setting up play dates, or talking to me about who I'd be taking to prom. I loved her with all of my heart, and I know that she loved me. I just never got to hear her say it. That's when the wheels started to come off. When everyone started doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Arguments between my older brothers and my stepfather seemed to be non-stop. They always seemed to end the same way. Well, you're not my father, which would be followed by a slamming door exit. The next five years would be best described as mayhem. Out-of-control parties, two of my brothers would quit school, a third place in a boys' training school, and then there was me. In fairness, the two oldest brothers remembered their dad. It had to be difficult for them. The younger two had no memories to cling to. For me, it was like having a front row seat to a train wreck. It would take many lives. Some days, I was the passenger. Another days, all I could do was watch. November 1963 to April 1968 seemed like an eternity. I was now in fifth grade in little hope for avoiding the same fate as my brothers when the presidential election was heating up. The country was in turmoil, and now a U.S. senator from New York had decided to enter the race late and needed a win so he organized, so he'd organized a rare whistle-stop train tour through the state. I was only 10 years old at the time, but the memory of my mother and her love for JFK prompted me to go and hear his younger brother, RFK, speak. There were people everywhere. It was a big deal. 
I couldn't see very well because of all the adults, but I could certainly hear him. Someone showed up with a Nixon poster. Oh, let's not talk about him, the senator said with a chuckle. The short whistle stop ended with applause, and that's when I sprang into action. I pushed my way forward, hopped up on the lip of the caboose, grabbed the railing with my left hand, and offered the senator my right. He shook my hand, and then quickly realized I was not going to let go. Let go, he said. I didn't. Let go, he said a second time while looking back over his shoulder. I could tell he was trying to decide if he should pull this runt over the railing to safety, or what. Let go, he exclaimed a third time. Finally, I did. I could see a worried look on the senator and Mrs. Kennedy's faces as I let go. The train was starting to push off. Fortunately for everyone, especially me, it would take a while to get up to speed, so it wasn't moving very fast when I jumped off. A little over one month later, he would be assassinated after winning the California primary, and I'd be back in front of the television set once again. This time, I was alone. For some reason, a still picture of him at the Ambassador Hotel has stuck with me all through these years. It was a black-and-white photo of the senator about to leave his room when he stooped over to pet his dog. The caption read simply, Freckles wants to frolic, but there is no time. His destiny awaits. Years later, I'd be working when a memorial was dedicated for RFK's extemporaneous speech the night Martin Luther King was shot and killed in Memphis. It is one of the greatest speeches of American history. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love, wisdom, and compassion toward one another, and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black, he offered to the crowd, gathered to meet him in Indianapolis. The memorial has RFK and MLK's hands outstretched toward one another, but not touching. I stop by now and then just to see that hand reaching out to remember the time that hand was reaching out to me. But there was no time. Our destinies awaited. So ends the second installment of the Tales of Auburn Creek, entitled Mom. This is Kevin Rader. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to encourage you to go to our website at RaiderMediaLLC.com and subscribe to our podcast. And if you feel so inclined, make a monetary contribution to help ensure that episodes will follow. Our intro and tag music, Highway Traveler, was performed by Alana Raider Weaver. Thank you so much for listening.